this morning, uh, we're going to start a new series, if you will. Uh, and I've talked to you before about uh, four questions. Here we go. The questions that matter. The questions that matter. We're going to be dealing with four uh, questions. Um, <clears throat> but I was thinking about this in this idea. I heard a, a story about a young boy who came to his mother. He's about nine years old. And he said, Mom, where did I come from? How did I get here? Now, he's about nine years old, and mom thinks, man, I thought this was going to be a conversation later. It wouldn't happen by the time he's nine. He wants to know uh, how he got here. How did he get here? Where's he from? And so she said, you know, Tommy, I need a couple of days, if you would, to kind of get some things. So she goes to the library and, and gets charged. And for, if you're under 40, a library is where they have books, and it's a building. Uh, Google is taking it over, but, you know, it's, it's called a library. Uh, so anyway, it goes to the library, gets charts and books, and, and begins the process of trying to explain, uh, you know, how a little boy gets here. So she gets him there, sets him down, gets through the process, uh, uh, explains all these matters. He's just, you know, sitting there like a deer in the headlights. And she gets through and she asks him, now, Tommy, have I answered all your questions? And he goes, well, some. And, and, and she said, do, do, you, do you understand where you came from. And she goes, he goes, not really. And she goes, well, what do you mean? He, she said, well, Tommy told me he came from Chicago <laughs> and I wanted to know where we came from. <laughs> it's old joke. Yeah. Sometimes we don't understand the question. Sometimes we don't take the time to consider the question. I was talking about, I read a report the other day from the United Kingdom, it may be different, but an average four-year-old, some of you moms can confirm this, an average four-year-old asks their mother 400, 300 questions a day. A mom told me that today. You know what one of those questions is? Mom, 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 right? Yeah. So, so the, the idea of asking questions, we're going to, we got some questions here. You know, I, I, Marty had, did a, had, had done a series on this, but I did, got a little research here. You, I want to just give you some information on how important questions must have been to Jesus. Do you know that in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus asked 101 questions? In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus asks 64 questions. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus asks 97 questions. In the Gospel of John, Jesus asks 50. Now that's 312, and of course there's some duplication because of, of the Gospels, uh, but there, there is this enduring reality that Jesus, as we think about his teaching and all, but he asks a lot of questions. And so the role of questions, the value of questions, I was thinking about this. Uh, in 1901, Wilhelm Maybach asked the question, why can't we put a, a combustion engine on a, on a vehicle and make a car? You know, aren't you glad that for Daimler Motors they started that? Uh, I, I'm glad that uh, in, uh, in 1976, around there, jo uh, Steve Jobs and uh, Steve Wozniak said, hey, how come people couldn't have a computer, right? Do you remember what Tom Watson for IBM said in 1967? Some of y'all were alive then. Yeah. Watson famously said, when they asked him about computers, there would only need to be four or five in the entire world. <coughs> yeah. Yeah, Wozniak and Jobs said, no, what, what, if we, what if we decided that everybody could have a computer? That's a great question. You know, I think about this, think about this, just this class. What, what, what if Dick and Terry Greenlee had never said, hey, is there a better way 
to deal with the water crisis in the world? Is there a way to develop a pump? I'm glad they asked that question. Gary and Charlotte Shaw said, hey, why can't we start a school in Honduras for girls that need help? I, I think that's a great question. Beth Thomas, hey, Bill, why can't I buy a new sewing machine? No, that wasn't the question. <laughs> no, no, sorry. The question was, the, 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 the point was to get a new sewing machine. But the question was, why can't I use my sewing skills to provide blankets for children who have cancer at the cancer hospital? And then, Bill, buy me a new machine. <laughs> Sharon Allen said, hey, why can't we plant apples in Africa right, to help people get an income? Darcy Graham, who said, hey, why can't we provide clothing for kids in Edmond who have needs? My question was, I thought everybody in Edmond was rich. (laughs) I guess it's not true, you know. And and I think all, all, these are people in our classroom that have asked questions that, um, that have made a difference. Right in this classroom. You know, there's something about as we get older, we quit asking questions. We don't continue to be as inquisitive or as engaged as we were before. But it's in the asking of questions that we discover sometimes the purpose and plan for our life. So I'm going to give you four. Now, we're not dealing with four. Don't hyperventilate if you thought we'd do four today. Probably over the next several weeks, we're going to do four. Maybe over the next couple of months, we're going to do four. Because here they are. Now, I, I, I wrote this. I, I, I have said to my students over the years, as I've worked with them, to try to clarify things and bring things down to some orderly manner, that there are four questions, in my judgment, that have to be answered, and I find that often I go back to them. They're just four. Now, that, this is my assessment. You know, you may say, well, maybe there's more in that cliff. That's okay. But here they are for me. And I think that most of my life and most of my work and most of my journey revolves somewhere in here. So, so the first question, we'll begin to deal with that. Number one, is there a God? Is there a God? Now, if you say no to this, you can forget the next three, okay? So <laughs> don't worry. But I think that's still a question people ask. And I, I'm going to kind of assume that most of you have sort of answered that or at least gotten around it or somebody made you come here today. <laughs> But, but you've, you've, you've pushed a little bit in this area, maybe. And, and maybe it's not as clear as it could be, and that's what we're going to hopefully do. Second question, if you answer that question yes, then the second question seems to me to be, then what is this God like? It, it's not enough to say there's a God. The question is, what is this God really like? I mean, you hear people talk all the time, and I say, you really think God is like that? I mean, these kind of issues begin to really dig around in our life. And, and, I, and I would say, uh, for, for many of us, that question never really gets up to the surface until something knocks us crazy, till we just get hammered. It can lay latent in our life. It can just be can, kind of hanging around. But we never really deal with it until we have to. Wait a minute. What is this God really like? Okay, second. Third one. <clears throat> third one. What does this God require of me? That's a big question. What does this God require of me? Are there requirements? Are there, are there things I need to know about? You know? Are, are, are there these kind of matters that I, that I should give some attention to? 
There are all kinds of answers here we'll look at. What does this God require of me? What is this relationship? You know, my students will say, well, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. I said, you haven't said anything. You know, everybody has a relationship with God. Everybody does. An atheist relationship is he doesn't exist. An agnostic's relationship is I'm not sure. Other people's relationship is Jesus is their waiter, that when they need him, they call him. For other people, he's their Lord and Master. You know, everybody, every, that, we haven't said anything by that. So what does this God require of me? Fourth, this is the, I'm, I, I put this one last because I'm still beating my brains out in a couple areas. Then what can I expect from this God? See, this is, this is where we get hung up. What, what, what can I expect from this God? I, man, those are really important questions. And for some of us, they, we, we may have explicitly dealt with them. We may, we have, may have de definitely worked our way through them. And others of us, maybe we've just sort of been around the edges of it. I, I want to try, and I'm not, you know, this isn't going to be the final answer of everything. But I'd like to spur you and incite you to at least give some attention and thought to these ideas. So then what does God, or what can I expect from him? I, 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 every day of our life, I think there is some issue that's happened or some matter that we've gone through that it raises that, wait a minute, I thought God would, <laughs> or I thought this would happen because I've been told that God is this. So all, all of those. Now, so we're, gonna start, so we're starting with question one today. Is there a God? Yes, you're dismissed. <laughs> I got an expert here today. I'm going to run the ball to him in a second. Let me say a couple things on your outline here. First of all, some initial considerations, I think. And again, I'm not going to answer every question. And Dr. Ben Harvey's here with us today. He's going to answer all your questions. He knows it all. So I'll just defer to him, right? So I'll throw you under the bus, Ben. You're welcome. <laughs> that uh, we're going to look at it, but but there's there's some initial consider. I want to I want to ask you to consider this. Number one, probability versus possibility. Um, nobody lives. You know, people say to me, "Is it possible the Bible's a lie?" Yeah, it's possible. Sure, it's possible. Anything is what possible, right? You know, right now I I, I remember one time uh, flying back from a meeting I had and. We couldn't get back on Sunday, and we flew back from Cincinnati, and we flew right by this church in an airplane. Yeah. I, didn't need to, I didn't probably need to make that consideration. When I said I flew by, I didn't probably have to say airplane. But anyway, I just want to be precise. Um, you know, is it possible that there's a plane right now that lost its hydraulics and is on the flight path to run right into this classroom? Is that possible? You bet it is. How come you not run out the door? It's not probable, okay? Is it possible you're going to choke on lunch today and die? The way I've seen some of y'all eat, yes. <clears throat> it's, a it's a fork, not a shovel, <clears throat> okay? Is it, I mean, it's possible, right? But we are, we're not going to not eat. I mean, none of us are going to live that fear. See, th this idea that, that what we have to do is live life based on probability. What is it that is the most probable explanation? What, I, I'll, 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 I'll give it to you. Is it possible there's no God? Yep, there's, it's possible. Is there possible the Bible's wrong? I'll, 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 what's the word? Stipulate to that. Yeah. 
But in evaluating the evidence, we have to come to some conclusion about the probability, which I believe there is high probability the Bible is true. There is high probability there's a God. So I, I want to, now, second of all, uh, and it's on here, science is a study of causes. Science as the study of causes. I think I've got this uh, quote on here. I'm so shook up for Marty. The, everything that had a beginning had a cause. I'm telling I'm still, Mar Marty messed me up here. Uh, everything that had a beginning had a, a, a cause. That's called the laws of causality. Francis Bacon, who, who uh, discovered bacon, uh, <clears throat> but not Canadian bacon. That was, that was by a bunch of communists. <clears throat> uh, what, was, what he says, true knowledge is knowledge by causes. By causes. So, so the idea of causes, what, what, what is there? And so we're going to look here quickly. I want to I get Ben up here. The origin of the universe, beginning. <clears throat> uh, this is the technical term here, and I, I'm going to run you through this. You're going to feel like you're in a wind tunnel. The, the cosmological argument for the existence of God in the universe, that either the universe is eternal, it's always existed, or it had a beginning. That's the question. And the cosmological argument is the argument of cause from, from the beginning. From the beginning. It comes from the word cosmos. It's, it's a big Greek term. That, that Bacon said that true knowledge, what's the cause? If anything exists in the universe, what's the cause? Is the universe eternal and matter consistent? Uh, you read ancient philosophers in Greece and they will say that Matter has always existed. Uh, and I'm not qualified to go through. I'm just telling you what I read and what I've studied. In 1916, Albert Einstein didn't like his calculations where they were leading him. If his theory of general relativity was true, it meant the universe was not eternal, but it had a beginning. And Einstein's calculations reveal a definite beginning of time, matter, and all eternal. This flew in the face of the belief that the universe was static and eternal. Einstein later called his discovery irritating. <laughs> irritating. He <clears throat> discovered in the theory of relativity that the strongest evidence is that the universe actually has a beginning. Now, if you watch TV, you know this theory um, about the beginning of the universe. It's called, see, if you watch TV, see, TV is educational. The Big Bang Theory. Now, you can study this one. I've got some resources for it. Listen, the Big Bang Theory is the notion, Einstein with his theory of relativity, and Arthur Eddington, Arthur Eddington, who was once contemporary, Eddington said he was not happy with the implications of general relativity. He said, philosophically, the notion of a beginning of the nature is repugnant to me. I should like to find a loophole. Victor Stinger, a, a physicist who taught at the University of Hawaii, once said, the universe exploded out of nothing. Not a little, nothing. Not a baseball, not a golf ball, but from nothing. And so the Big Bang Theory gives credence, and again, it's way past my pay grade, but if you study these uh, resources, the understanding is that the Big Bang Theory suggests that the universe started at a point at a time out of nothing. 
Now, Dawkins and a couple other guys say, well, it was a few mathematical points. No, that's not nothing. <laughs> it's from nothing. The Bible word or the biblical idea is ex nihilo, out of nothing. Hubble, uh, you might also uh, want to study uh, Edward, uh, Edward Hubble, who they named a, micro, or a telescope after him. Hubble came to the same conclusion, that the idea of the way that light and it works and all that kind of stuff, and it's, again, way back past my pay grade, that there is evidence, and from what I read in the journals I read and the books I read, the Big Bang Theory is a settled matter in science, that this thing started with a Big Bang from nothing. Einstein came to that conclusion. Eddington came to that conclusion. And Edward Hubble came to the same conclusion. That he found it, he said, though he found it repugnant, he said, the beginnings seem to present insurmountable difficulties unless we agree to look on it as, frankly, supernatural. Listen to this again. This is Arthur Eddington who said he was repulsed by it. The beginning seems to be presently in, and it has insufferable difficulties unless we agree to look on it as frankly supernatural from nothing. So that, that, that's that idea. I think I've got this other one here. Maybe I don't. The universe is expanding. The universe is expanding. This uh, was discovered by two physicists that actually won the Nobel Prize, Arno Penzias, P-E-N-Z-I-A-S, and Robert Wilson, 1965. Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson. They detected radiation accidentally. <laughs> Had an antenna at the Bell Labs in Homdale, New Jersey. And they began to detect this low-grade radiation it's funny when you read it, it, they thought because it was so, it was everywhere, every t place they turned on the antenna, they said, well, they thought it was some bird droppings. <laughs> but when they got back inside, they found the radiation was still there and it's still coming from all directions. They would win the Nobel Prize for discovering the afterglow of the Big Bang fireball, that it is expanding out into the universe. So the idea of the universe having a beginning, being able at some level to quantify its expansion from that beginning, scientists, there's always disagreement, but there are some evidence, if you will, for this. Now, let me, let me give you this last thing here real quick, and then I want to uh, <clears throat> give you, let me, let me tell you this guy. First of all, this is Robert Jastrow, who's the leading astronomer. He founded the NASA Goddard Institute on Space Studies. He, he really is an agnostic. Uh, he died some years ago, and you can get his book, God and the Astronomers. Uh, it's a, you, you can't get it at Kindle. It's all um, uh, a real book. Uh, yeah, it's one of those. Uh, remember those? Yeah. Uh, so he's an agnostic, uh, but he's an astronomer. And he wrote this book. He said, here we go. Uh, Get this. In my case, it should be understood from the start that I'm an agnostic in religious matters. But Jastro concluded his book with these two final sentences. For the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is able to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, 
He's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> Drop the mic. <laughs> this is Robert Jastrow, who is saying is a physicist and an astronomer. This is embarrassing. We top the hill and who's sitting there? A bunch of theologians. Now, if you haven't looked into this, I would recommend it, that this idea of the cosmological argument, the, the idea of beginning, this idea. There's some resources you have here. I, did I put that on here? I don't know. No, I didn't. Yeah, I've got that on there, but here's some books. I Don't Have Enough to Be Faith to Be an Atheist uh, by Frank Turek. I'm too far now. I've out... I've, yeah, I know they're on the paper. I've, I've just outslided myself here. Uh, <clears throat> The Signature in the Cell uh, by Stephen Myers. Uh, an incredible uh, argument about DNA that I don't even understand. I can say the words, but I don't understand them. Uh, and then More Than a Carpenter, Josh McDowell's a very easy read on the reliability of God in the Bible. You know, um, I tell my students this. I, 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 just, I ask them this. There are people that do not believe there's a God and some of them believe that because they have some intellectual problems. And we ought to try to address some of those. Right? We, we ought to be people who are willing to enter into the realm of science, to enter into the realm of logic, to say, look, are you going to tell me it's not possible? It's possible there's no God. You know? It's possible. But the probability tells me that there are answers and issues here that I have to consider. But, but there are people that... Now, now listen, there's other, there are other people, and I'm, you've, you've met them, or I know them. I say to my students, there are other people that don't believe there's a God, and it's just a tactic to avoid the message. Okay, just a tactic. They've not really looked into this matter. They've not carefully looked into the issues. We can deal with them as well. But we should be at least, if my, in my judgment, sensitive enough to people to say... This is a big question. I, 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 you know, I told you, I've asked my students lots of times, do you believe the Bible is reliable? Well, they all agree. They just can't tell me why. Why in the world would you say the Bible's reliable if you don't know why? You know, just because somebody told you? I went and bought a new car and maxed up my credit cards. I thought the world was coming to an end yesterday. <laughs> somebody told me, Right? Somebody told me, you ought to see that Hummer I bought. No, <laughs> We're in trouble now. <laughs> and I said to myself, why do you believe the Bible's true? There, there, this is not some religious test to say that it is, and you don't know why. That's called ignorance or laziness <laughs> or no opportunity. Maybe nobody's ever helped them to try to understand that. So this idea of is there evidence that the universe actually started from nothing. I, you know, does your brain have a trouble that? You, did, I got a Charlie horse in my brain right here. It, I, 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 that is a cat. I, I don't understand the category. I don't even understand the category. But if Einstein's theory of relativity and Jastrow's understanding and Wilson and his understanding of radiation, this constant expanding of the universe, we've got a place to stand that we believe that the universe is not just a conflagration of evidence of material that just kind of took a form, but started 
at a particular point in time. Now, that's one argument. The second one here, I thought um, you should have somebody that knows what they're talking about. <clears throat> the second one is the order of the universe. This is uh, what we call the teleological argument, the argument of design. Now, in reading, uh, in reading uh, uh, Darwin, page 186 in the copy I had, or where I was reading, or was re referenced, Darwin made an interesting observation, and it's, it's still up in the air, and there's some question. But in 186, Darwin makes this observation that one of the struggles that he has about whether or not this is just random, you know, it's just random selection, survival of the fittest, his, 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 he's reflecting in there that one of the things that continues to embarrass him or give him difficulty is the eye, the human eye. That it that there's the, the architecture and the structure is so fascinating that he admits it 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 it's hard to understand. You will, and of course, there are lots of people start arguing about it. So I have a good friend, Ben Harvey. He's a brilliant doctor. Uh, uh, he can even say the word ophthalmology. <laughs> now I've asked Ben to come on up here. Y'all be nice. Y'all smile. Come on up here, Ben. Ben's going to talk to us. He's an ophthalmologist surgeon, and he actually works on the eye. Okay. So Cliff wanted me to talk about the intelligent design of the eye. My name is Ben. Uh, I'm going to have my son Dane pass out some models so you can kind of reference these, pass them about. And uh, when talking about the eye, the more I work on the eye, the more I'm impressed by just the beauty of its design. Now, there, there can be arguments both ways of, of how it's evolved versus how it's created. But I think the way I picture it, First of all, I believe everything about the eye, about the human body, about the earth, about the universe has been created. Okay, how it's got there, outside my pay grade, I'm going to have Cliff talk more about that later on. But I'm the, one of those theologians on the hill. Yeah, he's, he's already on the hill. He's up there. I'm, I'm still trying to climb. Um, the, the, the beauty of the eye, it's one of the most specialized organs in the human body. The vision is one of the, the most precious senses that we have. If you were to poll diabetics and ask them if they'd rather lose a limb or their vision due to their diabetes, the majority of them would choose a limb. In uh, residency, when I worked in the emergency room in trauma, uh, if, if an eye-saving emergency surgery had to be done at the same time as a limb-saving emergency, well, the eye-saving emergency trumped the limb-saving emergency, so we got to kick the orthopods out of there. It felt, <laughs> felt kind of good. And so, anyway. Anyway, uh, any physicians, eye doctors here? All right, good, good. Okay, any other scientists, healthcare providers? Okay. How about physicists, physiologists? Okay, to the rest of you, I apologize because I'm a nerd out, okay? Um, so I, I, this is a pun, and I put it up there like because uh, I'm corny, okay? Uh, what is there about the eye that leads me to believe in the notion of intelligent design? Well, just look at it. Okay, and that's what we're going to do. We're just going to look at it. So, without light, the eye has no use. Day one, God creates light. Okay? Uh, light has different properties. Um, and the way we are able to perceive light is something we're going to talk about today. And what, what light does and how it functions. Okay? Uh, light, when it hits an object, it's either absorbed or reflected. There can be scattering. There can be other properties. But... We'll just stick to those two. 
So how do we perceive objects? Y'all all out there have matter. You're made up of atoms, and, and you're sit there, and you're living beings, and the, that desk is here, and this, this ground is here. How do I see this? How, do, how does this happen? Okay. Um, and how do these images get brought to our brains? How does the light from you come to my eye, and how does my brain see it and process it? So there's theories of light. It's somewhat unique, and it has two physical properties. One of that is it behaves as a wave, so a wavelength of light. You think, you know about the, the rainbow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, okay? And then you have wavelengths that are shorter than red, infrared, and longer, ultraviolet, so different wavelengths of diff for different kinds of light, okay? Um, but how does light create energy? Plants depend on light to create their food source, okay? We use light to uh, uh, create lasers. Laser is actually an acronym for light amplified stimulation of electron radiation. So that is explained more with uh, particle physics. And the particle, this inner packet energy of light is called a photon. And we perceive photons of light with photoreceptors. And these are your rods and cones you hear about, okay? so. You have some of these going around, but basically the top part of the eye is the cornea, and then you go through the pupil, through the lens, and then it's focused on the retina, that orangish hue. And then all the images from the retina go to that optic nerve in the bottom that goes to the brain, okay? So the retina is about 400 microns thick. A micron is a, a one one thousandth of a million, millimeter. Uh, and in these area, the center of the retina, you have most of your cones. They're responsible for fine detail, okay? The, the more peripheral you get, you get more rods. Those are responsible for things like movement and color perception, okay? Which makes sense, because you want to, when you're staring straight at something, you want to know if something's moving in the side, but you want to be able to see the fine details right there, okay? Here's a picture of the retina. It's about nine layers thick. You're going to see more than those. But starting from the top to the bottom, the very bottom, this area that's marked P, that's where the photoreceptors are. Okay? And so light goes through here, through the top all the way, and it kind of stops here because we have this pigmented area that acts as a barrier for light. So the light will be absorbed and, and retained right here. It's picked up by those photoreceptors. It meshes with these other cells. Uh, one's called a bipolar cell. So with, with neural anatomy, when you have a nerve, usually you have one axon, which is a part of the nerve that sends the signal to the body of the cell, and then you have a lot of different branches called dendrites. But with the eye, and the only other structure that has this in the body is the ear, they have bipolar cells, which is one axon, one dendrite, okay? And you want that whenever you're trying to see something because you want the fastest signal possible. So if I'm touching something, I have a lot of uh, proprioceptors in my fingers that are connected, a bunch of them, to a single cell that goes to my spine and then up to my brain, and that helps me determine. But with the eye, it's a one-to-one -one connection. Now, the further, peripheral, the further in the periphery you get, you have some three-to-one, four-to-one connections, but that, that most acute vision, you want a one-to-one -one immediate connection. 
And then it connects with what's called a ganglion cell. Then it goes to a nerve fiber layer. Okay, so there's about 1.5 million nerves in the eye that collects in the optic nerve, and that sends a signal to the brain. And so here's the visual pathway. I just threw out an eye chart up there just as a, because it's there, okay. What's um, that? It's going to go, the one on, the, on uh, your left is the brain as you're looking down into it, okay? So imagine you cut the brain like this, and you flipped it over on its side, okay? And so as the eye, as the light comes in, it goes to the optic nerve. This is called the optic chiasm, where a lot of the, the information splits. And then it goes to uh, the lateral geniculate uh, nucleus as part of the thalamus. Then it goes either to the, there's some radiations that go through the uh, temporal cortex. There's uh, the, the uh, the posterior cortex and the parietal lobe, then it goes to the occipital lobe, okay? And that's how we see things, okay? Uh, the fact that we can do this, the fact that we have the ability to see light emanating from things in the universe and our, and our eye is able to capture that and process that and bring that to life and we'll, we're able to understand it it's something, in my mind, that is a, a great, perfect creation. And the more and more, again, I work with the eye, the more that, to me, it seems like a beautiful design. It doesn't seem like a hapless, random evolution, although there are some theories for that, and that's okay. But from the eye, we try to mimic God's design and make things of our own, and I'm keeping this short. Uh, but basically, just think about the camera. Now, I know this is an antiquated design because everything's digital now, but for the focus, we have the lens and the cornea. Actually, the cornea, which is the clear part of the eye, is responsible for more of the focusing power than the lens inside the eye is. And accommodation, that's the muscles that control the lens and allow it to change shape so we can focus on different areas at different times. And that's, that mechanism is going to break down over time which is why most people over 40 need reading glasses. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, for the aperture, you have to have an aperture for your camera. The pupil's gonna constrict and dilate as it needs to. And for image capture, we don't have the old, uh, I'm, I, I'm old enough to remember the, the film, camera yeah. film, but we have digital image. The retina sends a signal to the optic nerve, sends a signal to the brain, which is, which is our, our digital network and our, our CPU. So that would be the analogy here. But again, it seems to me that, that this is something that is of uh, a beautiful design. And uh, I think that's all I have. Oh, well, thank you, Ben. You're welcome. Can I keep it under five minutes? That's okay, man. No, it's fine. Uh, you might also know that he wouldn't tell you this, but I will, because I'll get forgiven. Which one there? He's also the president of the Oklahoma Ophthalmology Society. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, yeah. And uh, thank you. I mean, I, you know, it's sort of like I heard a, <clears throat> a situation one time where a guy went to church that uh, had a scientist and some others share some information and the guy was asked afterwards, he said, well, <clears throat> how'd that go? He said, well, I didn't really understand too much of it. 
but I sure am glad that guy's on our side. <laughs> Not our side, but that. But I, 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 it just, it's, it's fascinating to me that as Darwin reflected on this, that the eye was that thing that, that caused him at least to say, this is something that looks a lot less random. And that if you're interested, I would just study it. I, you know, again, this, this you know, I'm, Ben can't tell you everything he knows about the eye in 10 minutes. I can't tell you everything I know about this or that I've even got to all the depths of it. But some resources for you. <clears throat> There's another principle here on, uh, if you will, on the, the, uh, the teleological argument. And it's this. That's not it. <clears throat> Uh, I think I, I think I thought we wouldn't get through. Here we go. On it. Let, let me give you the word here. Um, yeah, here we go. Uh, <clears throat> this order in the order. There's also what we call the anthropic constants. A n t h r o p i c. The anthropic constants. Now remember, the 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 argument here is that. There is a God, we believe, or we have some preponderance of evidence to say because of the fact that the universe actually has a beginning. If the universe is eternal, then it doesn't have a beginning. But if the universe does have a beginning because it isn't eternal, then there's something that is. <laughs> okay, that, let me boil that down for you. If the universe, if matter... Those things aren't eternal. And again, the Big Bang series says it was from nothing, not a little bit, not so, nothing. So if matter or that kind of stuff is not eternal, then there's something else that caused it. Remember, Bacon, the law of causality. So you have to wrestle with that. I mean, you, you, may, you may come to a different conclusion. I'm not here to tell you. Have to, I'm just saying for my purposes and my thoughts, when you read ancient Greek philosophers, they begin with the notion that matter is eternal. But the Big Bang Theory and the Hubble Telescope have telling us something else, that it's not. So there has to be something that is to start it. Okay, so, so that, now that's, that's the argument for beginnings or origins. Now, what Ben's talking about, what I'm talking about is the, is the argument for order. Origins, <clears throat> that was the first one. Order now. Order, that there's this incredibly elegant, I like that word when you think about the universe, it's, it's elegant, it's, it's precise, it's, it's beautiful, it's numbing at times, the matter of order, and this anthropic constant. Um, <clears throat> it's what makes human Life possible. These constants. I, this is my opinion. You don't have to agree with me. Thoughts and opinions, teacher, not necessarily thoughts, opinions across the community, church, its elders, our leadership. <clears throat> I, I heard a famous Christian say this <clears throat> one time, and I, and I disagreed. I mean, I wasn't there. I heard on television, but it was Billy Graham that they asked him, did he think there was life on other planets? And he said he thought there was. <clears throat> and I said, well, to date... Um, there isn't, to this point, we don't know. And we've, you know, explored some and there's a lot out there. I understand. But I, I think it, I think it gets at our tendency sometimes to think, oh, this can't, this can't be all there is. 
It could be if there's this good God who wanted a place to put creatures that bear His image to have a relationship with Him. And He created all this for us. Okay? Could be. Could be. Could be. I think we're falling in at times to the idea, well, sure, there has to be. Is it a possibility? Yeah, I, I agree. But so far, we you know, and again, we haven't gotten out of this galaxy. <laughs> but this anthropic principle, here, here's a few. You probably know these. The precise distance of the earth from the sun to sustain life. Slight movement in terms of the universe movement. We would freeze to death if it moved further away, or we would burn up if it got closer. Uh, <clears throat> there's a, there's a, uh, there's a, a, a reality here that, boy, this universe, if it spun into existence through just random matters, it did a great job right here. Now, again, you say you have multiple universes, multiple galaxies, and it could all happen if you just got one out of 47 billion trillion, whatever. I was fascinated by this. There's a guy named Jeffrey Zwerink. I maybe mispronounced it. Z-W-E-E-R-I-N-K. Zwerink. He's a physicist at UCLA. I'd never heard this before. He said, if the gravitational force was altered in the universe, in, on Earth, if it was altered by point, now put 37 zeros in line. So point, 37 zeros, one. <laughs> The sun would not exist, and neither would we. If the gravitational force was altered that little. This is Zwerink, or Zwerink, whatever. He's a UCLA research physicist. Oxygen levels. Oxygen comprises 20%, 21% of the atmosphere. The precise figure for anthropic constant would makes life possible. If oxygen were 25%, fires would erupt spontaneously. If it was 15%, humans would suffocate. Now, this is one of about six or seven. You can, you can look at it. But, but this idea of the order of the universe. The origin, big bang, or beginning. Now the order of the universe. When we take this for granted, C.S. Lewis uh, made this interesting statement. <clears throat> I didn't have time to think, but I want to I read it to you. It comes out of uh, the screw tape letters where he's, uh, where Wormwood or, or uh, Glugbon or what it is, is, is uh, training up a, a, a demon. <clears throat> he says this. He says, look, for your patient, do this. Keep pressing home on him the ordinariness, ordinariness of things. Don't allow people to notice the wonder and the greatness of the universe. Do you remember that in the screw tape letters? <clears throat> Here's what you do now. Don't, don't allow people to notice the wonder and the greatness of the universe. Don't let them see that. Don't, don't let them think about that kind of stuff, this wonder, this incredible greatness, the, the universe, the way it's set up and that we enjoy it as our home. We don't have time, but I've got one more. <clears throat> it's not on your list. I didn't put it on there, but I'll give it to you. What we've talked about today, is there a God based on the origin of the universe? Point one, it's on your hand, huh? Number two, based on the order <clears throat> of the universe. The third one we'll come back to next week. The ordeal of the universe. The ordeal. I'm using that word because in German... Order, ordal, ordal means a judgment or a determination. I'll give it to you right here. What, what I believe, 
finally settles it for me as well is the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, I'll just tell you this. Paul is pretty clear that if you can dethrone the resurrection, you can take this whole thing apart. Just like that. Go read it in 1 Corinthians 15. So we'll look at, if you will, the ordeal. What is it about the resurrection that we can come to some probability that might give us some confidence? There's a God. And Jesus talked about him a lot. Now, let's think about this from, in terms of application. <clears throat> what if, <clears throat> what if this week, what if this week, um, <clears throat> I, I'd encourage you to do two things. One is, I've, I've said you do this before, just go out at night at some point and look up at the stars. And remember Psalm 8, when I look at the heavens, the stars, the wonders, what is man? that you are mindful of him. I will tell you, I, I think some people have trouble believing there's a God just because of the expansiveness of the, of the universe. I've told you before, I, I can't get my head around it, expanding. I think there's a sign out there somewhere, universe ends in three miles. You know, it's got to, it's got to. I, can't, I just can't get there. But, but this week, to think about this expansive, incredible place we call home, If you will, go out and look at the stars and know that there's somebody behind that. There's someone who made this, started it for nothing. Or or, or second, what what Ben helped us with, why don't you look in the eyes of your kids or a loved one and realize that an incredible, incredible fact of creation, that eye you're looking at, is looking back at you. And to remember the order, the, the wonder, the order of the universe in which we live. Instead of, like Screwtape said, just blowing things off, if you will, as ordinary. Wouldn't our world be a little different if we did that? If we lived with a sense of wonder, with a sense of awe, that this God, who we believe exists, is here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Lord, the older I get, the bigger you get. The older I get, it seems the more I'm stunned. When I was younger, I thought I understood everything. Now I'm at at sometimes the only thing I can do is bow my knee. Just the wonder of the universe that we live in. Help us as we Think about this this week as we interact with people, as we engage. That you might enable us as we look up at the stars at night to just remember there was a time when this was not here. You began it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now, Lord, also when we look in the eyes of our friends or children or loved ones, that we'd be reminded this is a ordered, precise, elegant universe in which we live. May it cause us in wonder and praise to drop to our knees and thank you for the great gift of life and this place we call home. We pray this in Jesus' strong and mighty name. Amen.